Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 30 onwards. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. And the second reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. Matthew 1, 18 to 23. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because this, what is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, we've just heard two nativity stories this morning and sung a carol. Uh, We've remembered once more Jesus Christ's birthday. And uh, as Rachel said in that video, that's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Why have we done this in May? Well, there could be a good reason. Uh, There's a serious doubt that Jesus was born on the 25th of December, year year zero, sorry. Um, And maybe, therefore, he was actually born on May the 29th. You cannot prove that he wasn't. Uh, In which case, happy Christmas. Did you get any Christmas presents this morning? Well, most people, I suppose, have forgotten even why we give presents at Christmas. And, of course, it's to remember that Jesus Christ was God's gift uh, to the world, God's gift of his son when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we've just sung about that once in Royal David City, Bethlehem. Uh, Give or take 2,022 years ago. Uh, But let's not worry about the date. Uh, Instead, let's look at the fact that Christ actually was born. Perhaps the most important birth that's ever taken place. It's one of the key truths in the Apostles' Creed. So for this third uh, sermon on the Creed, we're going to investigate Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. 
Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary. So first of all, I want to say he was born a human being. You see, at first glance, Jesus Christ's birth doesn't look normal, does it? Most births don't get shepherds arriving or wise men bringing strange gifts from afar. Thankfully, few mums and dads uh, have to contend with murderous governments intent on trying to kill their babies. Perhaps cows and camels played a supporting role, uh, as many Christmas cards seem to depict, perhaps not. But we do know that a heavily pregnant Mary had to travel about 90 miles to get to her delivery suite. And when she arrived, it was a less than hygienic stable. And to this list of pretty unusual features, I would suggest, nine months or so before all that, we just heard, an angel had appeared to Mary and promised pregnancy and a son, even though she was a virgin. And few births, I would suggest, are announced by angels. Don't know whether anybody here, before they were born, was announced by an angel. Some of you look as though you were, and some of you, I wonder. Anyhow, sorry. <clears throat> Yet, even if a large number of features surrounding Christ's birth were amazing or bizarre, or even amazing and bizarre, uh, one thing was completely normal. When, according to what we read in, well, what we could read in Luke chapter 2, it says, The time came for the baby to be born. Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. There was nothing out of the ordinary of this child's birth. There was a normal pregnancy. Uh, that's what the passage implies, with Mary going on to have other sons uh, in due course, in the same way. Jesus was born in the normal way, on results of him growing in Mary's womb. An umbilical cord had to be cut. There was a placenta and there was blood. Jesus Christ didn't take his first breath having arrived on earth by some kind of spiritual stalk, uh, if such a thing exists, um, but by arriving in the messy and wonderful way that every baby has arrived since the beginning of time. Joseph, Mary's fiancé, also thought Mary's pregnancy was normal when he found out about it. According to what we read in Matthew 1, he understood her pregnancy to be because she'd had sex with someone else, not him. As far as he could see, everything was all too normal about this pregnancy and the birth. There was nothing remarkable at all. It was just disappointing for him. Much later, the Apostle Paul, writing to a church in a region called Galatia, said, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And while the phrase born under the, uh, under the law has many, many uh, aspects to its meaning, one of the meanings is that God's son was born according to the regular human process. So, as I've quickly pointed out, just of these few things in the Bible, I hope will convince any serious reader that Jesus' is, Jesus, is, Jesus was born as a regular human being. Absolutely conventional. But secondly, the Bible goes on to show 
that he lived and died as a human being. His life on earth was an absolutely ordinary human one. I can't point out all the passages that show this. If you want to know the references, do see me afterwards and I'll be happy to show you some of them. But the Bible shows us that he grew up from a baby to become a boy who sometimes upset his parents and eventually became a grown man with a job as a carpenter. He lived as a man. Like every other human, he sometimes became tired. He sometimes, he was hungry. Sometimes he was thirsty. The Bible tells us that he had normal human emotions of wonder, of grief, of sorrow, and of anxiety. Like every human, he had to learn. And when he was an adult, there were still limits to what he knew, just as there are limits to what you know. More than all this, he described himself as human. He calls himself the son of man on several occasions. And one more thing, like every human ought to do, he worshipped God. And he prayed submissively to God. He was flesh and blood. He got scars when he was injured, just like we do. And though the method of his death is unlikely to be our experience, he did breathe his last and he expired, just as one day you will and as one day I will. He died as a man. In every respect, he was a normal human being. But the Apostles' Creed says something else. We're going to see that he was born of God. He was born of God. He doesn't, the Creed doesn't just say that Jesus Christ was born of Mary, but also that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel announcing Christ's birth told Mary that the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. To Joseph, the angel said, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Christ's conception was absolutely abnormal. It was absolutely unique. And as a consequence, Christ was and is unique. God, Father and Holy Spirit were originators of the earthly birth of the Lord Jesus Mary was their willing servant, ready to have the baby Christ grow within her, so that we can say, like the Apostle John said, that Christ is the one born of God, just as readily as we can say that he was born of Mary. Although, as we've seen, uh, he was born and lived as a regular human being, he was much more than just a human being. Those angels who'd announced Christ's birth, they said of him, he will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end, they said. They call him the Holy One and those angels call him the Son of God. He's given the name Saviour, because he's going to save his people from their sins. 
And all things are certainly not true of regular human beings. They're not true of anyone else, ever. And three times during his life on earth, we're told that God the Father uh, in heaven proclaimed audibly to people on earth, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Or on another occasion, this is my son whom I've chosen. Jesus is born of God and he's God's loved and chosen son. But that's not all. Fourthly, not only was he born of God, he is God. He continues to be God. In recounting the story of Christ's birth, Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah uh, in chapter 7. And he picks out the implications of those angels' message. He says, uh, quoting from Isaiah, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, and that means God with us. This may be one of the first indications that Jesus is God as well as human. It certainly won't be the last in the Bible. Jesus said of himself, I am. He used that self-description on several occasions, and of course in picking up those words, I am, he picked up what God had said in the Old Testament of the Bible. He used, God had used that phrase, I am, as his personal name. And Jesus uses the same name. And he declares himself to be God's equal when he says in, later in the book of Matthew, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who sits at the right hand of God? But God's... Uh, person, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Saviour in Titus. And I guess uh, Jason will be getting to that very soon in his next study in the, book from, uh, in the study from the book of Titus. When the Apostle John describes Christ's arrival on earth, he says, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognise him. So this person, Jesus, is the creator of the world. He's God. He existed before there was a world, and he created it. So if you take all these evidences together, you just have to be convinced that Jesus is God. So, drawing those together, he is God and he is human. He's both. Whichever way you look at it. Jesus Christ is the eternal God who entered this world as a human. Christ's godness, if I can call it that, is somehow contained in a human form. The Apostle Paul says, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Yet this bodily form doesn't limit his godness in any way. As the author of the book of Hebrews puts it, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We, we, we can't get our heads around this really, can we? 
that we've got a human, an ordinary human, and we have God somehow together. So let, let me try and sort of put those together. The baby who grew to become Jesus, the man that we read about in the Bible, in the New Testament, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a human father, brought into this world by the operation of the power of the Most High God, chosen by God, sent by God, fully accepted by God as his son, and God completely in every way. So we have to say that in some respects, the second person of the Godhead, the son, voluntarily constrained or hid in some way some aspects of his characteristics as God when he became man. But he didn't lose them. His all-powerful nature as God wasn't seen in general by the people around him. Those Pharisees uh, who often criticised him and questioned him, they didn't see him as God. They saw him as a human. We have only really got one account in the, in, when he was alive on earth uh, when there was some indication that he was God. If those of you who know your Bibles well will know about what we call the transfiguration, uh, where there was some glimpse of his godness by some of his followers. But that godness doesn't seem to have been experienced by Christ in Gethsemane as he faced trial and death sentence. And this self-constraint is still true in some ways. This man lives in heaven with scars, with imperfections in his body, yet at the same time is nevertheless perfect in every way. These two natures, God and man, they coexist. John, the Apostle John, writing in his book, in his Gospel in the Bible, says the word, God, became flesh. God the Son took a nature that he had not had before. And he did it without in any way losing the nature that he had had before. When Christ was born in Judea 2,000 and whatever years ago, he added to his person. He became what he had never been before. And really, that's beyond our ability to understand, isn't it? How could a perfect and complete God add something to himself without either damaging what he, the perfection he had before or effectively admitting that he wasn't perfect before and he needed something to be added to himself to make himself perfect. And I haven't got an answer to that question. He's God. We do not understand these things. Otherwise, how could God the Father have expressed such love and admiration of the Son as he did three times during Christ's life? No, God the Father saw the glorious combination of God and man in Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. These two natures, God and man, coexist in Jesus. The God the Son took this nature 
and added to himself humanity and has been like that ever since. Now I want to take a slight digression here, only a slight one, to 451 AD. Uh, Now I know some of you are quite old, but don't think anyone was around in 451. Though it looks like some of you might have been. Anyhow, um, you shouldn't be surprising that the early church found these concepts difficult to handle, because we find them difficult to handle. It wasn't long after Christ's death that some people suggested that Christ was a regular man in whom God lived for a while, but God didn't hang on the cross. That was the human. God wasn't there anymore. Others came along who suggested the reverse. They said that the Son of God did come to live on earth, and he sort of took a human out of shell, as it were. He wasn't really a human, he just looked like a human. And in the end, he dropped his skin, as it were, on the cross. So in 449 AD, a council of church leaders was convened, and they met in a place called Chalcedon. Uh, It's just on the eastern side of the Bosphorus, just across the water from Istanbul, as we call it now. It's in the suburbs of Istanbul these days. Uh, on the Asian side. And their purpose was to define exactly what the Bible taught about Christ, man and God. And to establish a statement which potentially erroneous beliefs could be tested against. And here's their statement. I'm going to read it quickly, and it's in legalese, so sorry about that. They took 18 months to produce this, or thereabouts. It's this, we teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted, not divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you got that? Well, actually, it was in Greek. (laughs) So it was even more difficult to understand. Um, Now, thankfully, a guy called Wayne Grudem and his son uh, put this in much easier English for us, and the headlines are going to come, I think, behind me. First of all, Jesus Christ has two natures. He's God and man. Secondly, each nature is complete. He's fully God, and he's fully man. Thirdly, Each nature remains distinct. His godness isn't compromised by his humanity, nor his humanity supercharged by his godness. Fourthly, fortunately there are only five things here, I've only got five fingers. Fourthly, Christ is and remains only one person with both natures all the time. He's not switching off one and switching on the other. And fifthly, And this is the one which is the most difficult, I think, to get our heads around. 
Things that are true of only one nature are true of Christ, even if things that are true of the other nature would seem to stop it. Shall I say that again? Things that are true of one nature of God, of, of Christ, are true of him, even if characteristics of the other nature would seem to prevent it. So I talked earlier, didn't I, about our when he grew up, he didn't know everything. Well, as a human, he didn't know everything. But as God, he does know everything. Now, one of those would seem to conflict with the other, wouldn't it? But this is, the, this is what the fifth one means. A characteristic of one nature, that he didn't know everything, doesn't conflict with the characteristic that he does know everything in his other nature, even though they would seem to clash. So when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to God, not, he, as a human, he did not know what he was facing. He trusted God, he had to trust God, but he didn't know what he was facing. But as God, of course, he did. And one doesn't water down the other. He is fully man and he is fully God. Well, let's come to perhaps something more important, well, maybe not more important, but as important for us this morning. What does this mean for us? What relevance does all this have to us? Perhaps you're thinking, all very interesting. Thank you, Andrew, for exercising my brain. But what difference does this make to me today? Or better, maybe we should ask the question, Okay, now that I know these amazing things about Christ's nature, or Christ's natures, how should I respond? Because we're faced with an astounding truth here, that there is someone absolutely like you and me, who is also nothing at all like you and me, at the same time. Well, there are many consequences. I just want to pick out five consequences this morning. And the first consequence is that he can take your and my punishment for sin. He can take your and my punishment for sin. You see, God will remain holy, come what may. His purity, his righteousness and perfection are the very essence of his being, of who he is. But we are none of these. We're impure, we're sinful, we're imperfect. If he were to accept us as we are, he would become polluted and he would cease to be God. The whole universe would crash. So our impurity, our imperfection, our sin has got to be destroyed. We must be punished. You and I are destined to suffer in body and in soul unless there's someone who can stand in our place and take that punishment for us. And the glorious message of Christ's birth is that he can do just that. For two reasons. He's just like us in his humanness. His human nature means 
he can stand in our place as our substitute because he's just like us. But secondly, he was and is perfect in every way because he's God. He doesn't have any sin. He doesn't have his own imperfection and sin and unrighteousness to pay for. So taking those two things together, he can pay for your sin or for mine. He can be our substitute. He can take the punishment which God is going to impose on humans. He can pay for your sin and for mine. Because he is human, he can suffer for sin in body and soul as we ought to, or as we will, unless he takes that suffering for us. And because he's pure, he's acceptable to God. Is he your substitute? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the carrier of the punishment which you deserve? Secondly, he can purify you and me and he can give us life eternal. He can purify you and me and give us life eternal. If we've trusted Jesus Christ to be our substitute, he doesn't only take our punishment and wipe our slate clean, he replaces it with his godly perfection. You see, God's wrath against sin is infinite. He's infinitely holy. So there's an infinitely wide gap between whom we should be and whom we are. And only God himself in Jesus Christ could provide a sacrifice for sins that was infinitely holy, which would be effective for every Christian and which would eternally satisfy God the judge. Only God himself could conquer death and be raised back to life. Only God can extend this conquest over death and sin to those for whom he's paid the penalty for sin. We need God, not just a perfect human. Because Christ is both God and human, everyone who cries out to Jesus Christ for mercy can be delivered from God's punishment that each of us uh, completely deserves. Uh, I've written, rewritten a little bit of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, maybe in Pick this out a bit. Let me read these. The first human, Adam, screwed up and rejected God. Ever since, every human has inherited Adam's broken humanness and has lived and died in the same way as Adam. But now a perfect human being has, uh, but now a perfect human being has appeared, Jesus Christ. And every human whose life is now in Christ will inherit his perfection and will be made alive forever. Christ has already been raised from the dead and he is the first in a long list of those who will be raised from the dead. You can read that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22 in slightly more biblical language. But I thought to pick it out like that just explains a little bit what's going on and the effect it has on us. Thirdly, I want to say, he understands you and me. I could have spoken about this for a long time, but just very briefly, 
Jesus Christ understands us absolutely, completely, in every way. He's God and he sees us just as God sees us. Every aspect of our character. Nothing about you and me is not known by him. He knows absolutely everything. Things you don't know about yourself, he knows. Because he's God. But he has also experienced what it is to live on earth. He's experienced the joys and sorrows of earthly life. He's experienced hopes and fears. Health and pain. Love and hatred. Riches and poverty. Whatever you're experiencing, however bad it is, or however good it is, Christ has experienced it. There is no aspect of your life or mine that he doesn't fully know about and which he can't understand because he's been there himself. He's God and he's man. And fourthly, he can represent us to God the Father. He can represent you, he can represent me to God the Father. There's a man in heaven. Today, there is a man in heaven, a perfect man in the closest possible communication with his Father, God Almighty. They talk to each other all the time. And if you are in Christ's redeemed family, trusting him for life eternal, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our fellow human being. God the Father accepts us because Jesus is accepted by the Father. And every true Christian is accepted along with Christ. The Father loves the Son and loves everyone whom the Son loves. As it says in Romans chapter 8, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who's going to be the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. If you're a Christian, then you've got a representative in heaven today. One like you, and he has the ear of the Father, God eternal. What could be better? A man who is God. And fifthly and lastly, God can accept you and me as his own children. Jesus Christ, the human being, has opened heaven to humans. Heaven before was only for God. But now there can be humans in heaven because a man has opened the doors. The first man and woman were driven out of perfect Eden. You read about it in the, right at the beginning of the Bible. They were th thrown out of this perfect Eden, thrown away from God because they'd rebelled against God. But Jesus Christ, the perfect man, has opened a way into God's presence and because he's God, he's keeping it open for you and no one can shut it. We'll find that, if, maybe we'll read about that, uh, Dave, in uh, 
those studies in Revelation we're going to be doing. But this man, Jesus, who is God, was sent by the Father, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption by God as his sons and daughters. God calls us to change our allegiance, to reject life centred on doomed human life we've inherited from that first Adam, first human, Adam, and to put our trust, our allegiance, in the first perfect man, who's also God, to put our trust and allegiance in Jesus Christ, and thereby to become God's children forever. Jesus Christ comes to those like you and me, who are humans, just like he is, and so often those who don't receive him. But to everyone who does receive him, to all of those who really trust in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Not children born in the natural way, but children born of God. Well, let me wrap up in summary. Jesus Christ had to be truly human in order to suffer in our place and to sympathise with us in our weaknesses. Jesus Christ had to be truly divine in order to satisfy God's justice and to secure our resurrection forever. Like him, we are all born of Mary. We have human parents. We are all human. But we too can be born of God and share the same Holy Spirit by whom he was conceived. We too can be born of God... Sorry. We too uh, can have a spiritual nature as well as a human nature. Christ had a spiritual nature and a human nature was added to it. We have a human nature and by God's grace we can have a spiritual nature added to it. Because anyone with a human nature who puts their hope 100% in the person of Jesus Christ will gain a new spiritual nature eternally added to their human nature never to be lost and they will live like God in purity and holiness forever. Well I trust that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and you too have had a spiritual nature added and you have become in that sense like Christ with a spiritual nature as well as a human one.